Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 253 of our Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Faithful Healing, an interview with Hayden Crook. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So today's interview is about a very young and healthy individual who contracted Lyme disease and very shortly within a few months was bedbound. Hayden talks to us about his faith and how it was an integral part of his healing journey. And without it, he wouldn't be where he is today. He held on, found a quarterback to manage his care, developed a team of doctors, and together, collectively, they've been able to make some great progress over these past two years, and even found some special doctors that we've never heard of before in this podcast, like a geneticist who has been able to help him identify certain genetic deficiencies and how to overcome them to recover from chronic Lyme disease. So if you're a very sensitive patient and you react to everything and have extreme detox reactions and are afraid that any treatment out there is going to make you flare or have a bad reaction, then this is the podcast episode for you. Hayden teaches us that you must have faith and there is a path to healing. So without further ado, Hayden Crook in Faithful Healing. Hey, Hayden Crook, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're really blessed to have you, Hayden, and you're one of the people we've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. So really happy that we finally gotten you uh, to uh, meet with us and start to share your journey with the folks in the Tick Bootcamp community. So thank you so much for um, being willing to um, share your experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope it helps some people. I've, I've listened to your guys' podcast for a while now, and it's helped me. So, Well, we know you're going to help other folks too by, uh, by vulnerably sharing your journey. So Hayden, talk to us about where you're from. I'm originally, I was born in Portland, Oregon, uh, but raised in Central Oregon, so Bend, Oregon area. Um, so, so you're a, a, a Northwestern guy. Yeah, I've talked to my wife the other day, and we've actually never left, or we've left, but never have lived in another state other than Oregon. So, been here for a while. <laughs> All right. So, uh, we're talking to you from clear across the country. We're almost as far east as you can go here out on Long Island. Um, we, uh, we are affectionately known as the Tick Belt, and it's interesting that uh, despite you being outside of the Tick Belt, uh, you have Lyme disease, and um, you know, as a Northwestern guy, it's, uh, it's gone clear across the country. Yeah, that was one of the issues for sure. No one knows of Lyme here, and uh, I didn't know what Lyme disease was prior to getting sick either, so it's something that's not talked about here at all. So why don't we go go there, Hayden? Why don't you talk to us about what your childhood was like? What was what was it like to grow up in the uh, great Northwest? Yeah, my family's very active. Um, I grew up playing sports my entire life. So in high school, I played basketball, football, and soccer. Um, we were always outdoors. Um, my mom was a marathon runner. Dad's an athlete. So we grew up doing activities all the time. Um, and then, and outside all the time as well. And so then we, I went on to then, uh, play football at the university of Oregon as well, and just continue, um, my athletic career there and education at U of O. Wow. So we have a, we have a D one athlete on the, uh, on the line folks. So talk to us about, um, talk to us about what it was like to, uh, be raised, you know, with, with this good athletic stock, mom and dad are good athletes. They produce this really good athlete. You're spending a lot of time outdoors, uh, engaging in athletic activities. Were you, were you, um, during the course of either being trained by your parents or coaches, given instructions on how to keep yourself safe from, um, getting hurt while playing sports? Um, not really. No. I mean, just the normal stuff that, uh, people, 
talk about in terms of broken bones and how to be careful when you tackle and things like that. Um, in terms of outdoors activities, nothing. Um, I honestly didn't even know what a tick was um, growing up at all. So in terms of the outdoor side of things, no. With athletics and indoors athletics, there is obviously um, certain things that we would do and not do in order to protect ourselves there. But you sort of anticipated my question. So you knew nothing about ticks, nothing about tick diseases. You were never urged to take precautions to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks, despite spending a lot of time outdoors. No, not a single time. Um, I can literally say the first time I heard about a tick was when I was sick and diagnosed with Lyme disease. Uh, it was the first time I heard what a tick was, to be honest, uh, especially on the West Coast, too. So and I never left to go anywhere northeast or anything like that so no i hear friends that talk about how their kids do tick checks and stuff like that after recess all of that was definitely not the case in oregon okay so now you um you graduate from high school uh you go to one of the top colleges in the country um you're uh, you're an athlete right and uh, athletes are given some privilege, especially at these Division One schools. I wouldn't be surprised that uh, a Division One football player saw some of the, uh, you know, some of the best parts of the University of Oregon. Um, anybody ever share with you while you were a college athlete that you should be careful to protect yourself from any vector, um, any vectors like uh, mosquitoes or ticks or anything like that? No, no. The answer to that's no. Definitely not. Um... Yeah, I was, I am privileged to have that type of education and have been around uh, people in the medical community at a very high level as well um, at U of O and not one time have I've ever been talked to about tick-borne illnesses, even, I mean, mosquito bites, yes, we, I mean, everyone wore, um, you know, mosquito spray when they went camping, if you were camping by a river type of thing, but other than that, no, it was never discussed, never talked about. Uh, honestly, I like I said, I even in college, I had no idea what it was. So what was your vision for your future? When you went to college, what did you major in and, and what kind of courses uh, were you studying? Yeah, so, I mean, originally I wanted to become a professional football player. I was a kicker at the University of Oregon, so my dream and goal was to kick in the NFL. Um, when I was found out, I was going to fall short of that because there's 32 kickers in the NFL. There's one on each team and I was not going to be that good. Um, I decided to, uh, I, my degree was in psychology and business. Um, so I just kind of want to keep it as, as broad as possible there, but I wanted to go into ministry. Vocational ministry is what I really wanted to do. Um, I started, I came to know Jesus and started following Jesus um, and developed my faith my junior year of college. Um, where I was kind of reached and discipled by teammates on my football team. And so since then, the Lord kind of uh, put me on a trajectory to ministry. So I was had my mind set on ministry in some capacity, whether that's missions work, church work, whatever that looks like after college. That was my goal once I graduated. Talk to us about when you first started to feel the symptoms of what you now know to be uh, your tick disease. Yeah, so that came way after college. Um, that came in October of 2018 is okay. when I first started uh, developing symptoms uh, for Lyme disease. 
So where were you in your life at that point? You, you said you had graduated from college. What were you doing at that time when you first started to feel the symptoms? Yeah, I was pastoring at a church as a youth pastor up in Portland, Oregon. Um, and the reason why I know the time is because so I was healthy, functioning at a very high level as a 25-year-old male then, a youth pastor uh, running really hard. And um, then we went on a missions trip to a Native American reservation here in central Oregon, um, but it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And we cut firewood, delivered firewood uh, to the community there at the reservation uh, to get ready for winter. So we spent about three days outside there in the woods. Um, and there is when I developed headache and dizziness. And so that's when I started to know something was off symptom wise. That's when it started. So now again, we, we've already built out this context. You're the child of two gifted athletes. You're a gifted athlete. You're a, you're a division one football player. You got that close to a pro career, but of course, kickers have really long careers. So not only are there only 32 of them, they play forever. So you, you didn't pick the right position, right? And, uh, but you are still a gifted athlete, right? You go out and engage in a, in a, in a, in a, um, a physical activity for a couple of days, and now you're starting to feel differently than you ever felt before, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I just started developing the different type of headache. I've had concussions before playing football. I've gotten my bell rung. Um, so I know what a headache is and what dizziness feels like. Something felt different on this trip, um, and I just couldn't really explain it. So, yeah, that's okay. where it started. Now, Hayden, do you believe you were bitten by a tick during that three-day window where you were doing the work uh, in that Native American community? I, I don't remember pulling a tick off my body. My wife does, she remembers uh, a weird type of she, what she explained at the time as a spider bite, a different type of spider bite on my arm. Uh, so I didn't know this whole time. I mean, for about a couple months after that trip. However, the reason why I'm almost positive it's from that trip is because another high school student on that trip um, contracted Lyme disease from it and spiraled downhill to very quickly and had to drop out of high school. Okay, so let's let's focus on on that moment in time, right? Yeah. You shared with us that you didn't know what ticks were. You didn't have any education about ticks. Your parents never talked with you about them. Your educational experience, despite going to one of the top schools in the country, did not include um, uh, any any training or education about ticks. You were you played in an elite. Uh, athletic program where where you were expected to perform at a very high level. The school makes millions of dollars on their athletes, especially their football players. You're not given any information about it. But how about now? You're now in ministry. You're now working. You're out in the in the field. Anybody give you any um, any information about how to protect yourself from ticks or tick diseases? No, still no. At that point, I had no idea. Uh, if, yeah, and I that's something I struggle with now to this day is why I didn't know because I was. I was the pastor of, I brought 40, 50 kids on that trip. And I knew we were going in the middle of the, uh, the woods basically to cut firewood. And if I would have known, um, I probably would have done things a little bit differently or been a little bit more proactive, but I had no idea. Okay. So now you and your, the 50, 40 or 50 children that are in your charge are out in, that, out in this very dangerous environment. You're protecting yourself, I guess, against snakes and against bears and against all kinds of other things, but you're not taking any steps to protect yourself from this, um, this very small um, uh, disease-carrying um, um, bug. 
Yeah, that is correct. We were not. So talk to us about how your symptoms developed from the, uh, you know, from the time when you had this, um, this beginning of your health challenges uh, after working in the woods uh, at this, uh, um, at this uh, event where you were cutting wood for the Native American community. Yeah. So I, my story, I, I've heard a lot of people's Lyme stories. Mine seems different in the sense that um, I went downhill very quickly. And so basically the trip was October. Um, by December, I was bedridden. And so, and my wife was my, had to quit her job to be my full-time caretaker. So in between October and December, my main symptoms were dizziness, headache, and brain fog. Like just unusual, like, where am I at? Oh, what am I doing in the grocery store? Like, what am I looking for? Those type of symptoms. Um, I was still functioning in terms of, I was still pastoring at the church. I was still working in that capacity and my social life wasn't affected that much. However, I basically, all I did, I, all I knew what to do was to um, set up an appointment with a neurologist. So I, I did that in between October and December. Um, and then when December came around, it's actually Christmas day. Um, I woke up with high fever and flu-like symptoms on top of everything. And ever since then, um, everything just spiraled downhill from December 25th is on for about eight or nine months. I was completely bedridden. So, Hey, let's explore that, uh, that quick decline in your health together for a couple of seconds. So, um, it's pretty rare in the Lyme community, at least we're told by doctors like Dr. Rawls and Dr. Phillips, some of the experts in, in the field, that, that it's pretty rare for somebody to go from being acutely ill to being chronically ill, unless there are one of two factors that surface. The first factor is if you're bitten by many ticks and, and, and there's an overload of the microbes that uh, you are ultimately trying to defend or your immune system is trying to defend against. The second is if you're living in a high mold environment where you have this immunosuppressive uh, experience with the mold and now your acute, um, your acute disease is it becomes a chronic disease. And, and, and quite frankly, it's, it's pretty surprising that a young athletically gifted person like you would have that kind of decline so quickly. So talk to us about uh, what your reaction is to the experience that most of these clinicians have shared with us. Yeah. I mean, I know that I was in a moldy environment for sure. I was living in a basement of a house, um, in the middle of Portland, which is in a very old house as well. <laughs> um, I wasn't making big time money as a pastor. So, uh, I was cutting down with rent in that way. And so I know that mold played a major role in that. And I was living in that for about two years before really getting sick. I didn't notice any symptoms from it, but I know it was mold. There was mold there. Um, and so I was basically living in that for about two years. So that definitely played a role. Um, but then to answer your question in terms of doctors' responses, I've, I've had many meetings with Dr. Rawls and other top doctors. Um, and they, the, my case is unique in many ways, that being one of them and how quick I went downhill. Uh, also, my Herx reactions, which we can get into later, is one thing that has made my case uh, unique and difficult to recover from. So um, talk to us a little bit more about what it's like to live in the Northwest. I mean, the image that I have, I've never, never visited the Northwest, but the image that I have in my head is that 
you know, it rains all the time and it's damp all the time. So is that true? Is that really what the what the state is like? And, and as a result, is there really a lot of mold everywhere? And not just where you are living, but you're sort of coming in contact with mold, moldy environments all the time? Yeah, what people think of that have never come to Oregon is that and that's the most that's west of the Cascades. So the bigger cities like Portland, Salem, um, Eugene, all up down the I-5, that is 100 percent it. Uh, I mean, there's mildew going on sidewalks and you see it everywhere. Um, so, I mean, they, that's they're just bombarded with rain all the time. However, where I live now and, and where I grew up um, in Bend is very opposite. My similar to like a Denver, Colorado climate. So we get 300 days of sun, it's dry, we get snow, um, which is one of the main reasons also why my wife and I have moved here uh, to get away as I continue to heal is to get away from that type of climate and that type of uh, environment over there. So, so but at the time that you were, you were crashing, when your health is crashing, you were living in an environment, not just in the house, but generally you were living in a place where there was just a lot of mold exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So talk to us about how your symptoms developed. And actually, before you go there, how long did it take for you to finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis from when you crashed in December to the time that you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yeah, so crashed in December, I was diagnosed with Lyme early March. Okay. So, so you also had a, you had a short diagnostic journey as well, which is, which is unique. Yeah, very short. And it was mainly because, um, I mean, my wife, we just show up at the ER multiple times. I mean, like eight, nine times where they said, my, my wife says, you're, you're going to take him. I don't care what you say. You're going to take him and you're going to admit him. And we're going to run as many tests as possible because this is not normal. This is so we, um, uh, we had our foot to the gas pretty hard, um, to get something diagnosed quickly. And I, I mean, I was diagnosed with many things and given many things in those couple months for sure. Um, and many different procedures that I was given. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, about three months, I think is what it took to become diagnosed through hygienics with Lyme. Okay. So, so, hey, so you have this three month diagnostic journey and you believe that you, your journey was short because you just kept demanding answers, right? You wanted answers, your wife wanted answers and you kept advocating for yourself and your wife kept advocating for you, correct? Correct. Yeah. And my wife, I give 100% credit to her because I would, I couldn't even speak. I was barely remembering my name. She was helping me in the bathroom. Um, so it, it was her you need to advocate like my wife in your life, if you're going to get better for sure. And so she made it um, quicker for, in order to get the diagnosis. So, so Hayden, talk to us about what the three months was like. I mean, again, just, just, I don't want to, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this because I, I have been jumping up and down about you being a division one athlete, but the like, you know, let, let, let's, I mean, you're a gifted athlete, right? I mean, you don't go to a division one school and play football at Oregon, unless you're a, you're a, a an athletic freak, right? How, how is this person who has always had this gifted body and this gifted capacity now changed during this three-month window after you crashed? Yeah, I, I didn't even rec recognize myself. Um, basically, symptom-wise, I had a high fever uh, just in terms of flu-like symptoms that come along with that. But the worst part was the neurological symptoms. Um, I was so sensitive to noise and sound, like hearing an airplane go outside would absolutely freak me out. 
um, I couldn't walk to the bathroom um, or shower because it, I was so dizzy and disoriented. My wife had to help me there. I didn't shower for, it was usually like one time a week is when, is how much I would try to shower. And my wife would try to get me to shower at the time. Um, I wasn't remembering my name. I couldn't listen or watch anything because it would just completely overwhelm me and over it just so much stimulus. And I didn't know how to express myself because I couldn't communicate at the time. Um, so those are kind of all things that were going on. And I mean, one time, uh, one weekend I slept from for 36 hours straight and never woke up once. Um, and that was kind of the, I mean, one of the times where I hit rock bottom for sure. So Hayden, you said you went to the hospital nine times between when you crashed and when you finally got your diagnosis. What was happening each time you went to the hospital and what were the doctors or hospitalists that you were interacting with um, diagnosing you with? Yeah, the, I mean, multiple times it was uh, anxiety. Other times it was uh, migraine uh, medications, uh, like a migraine cocktail as they give me and then send me on my way. Um, they, they would drug test me every time I would go in. They thought I was on drugs. Um, and so we ended up having to strategically start bringing in pastors from the church to kind of show that this, this isn't, he's not on drugs. He's not a druggie. He, he's, he needs help. Um, and so that ended up helping me get admitted into the hospital. So just to, I think it took like four or five times of ER trips. They ran MRIs at the hospital as well uh, in the ER, but they, they know every time we just left with even honestly, sometimes worse than we walked in. Um, but I want, but two times, I guess they did admit me one for two days, one for seven days or six days. Um, they admitted me and basically used that entire time to run as many tests as possible from their standpoint to try to figure out what was going on. Now, during any of these hospital stays, will you refer to any other doctors or were you treating with any other doctors other than at the at the emergency room? Yeah, so they they were going down the MS route for sure. Um, I had a neurologist that was leaning 100% towards the MS. Um, so I had a spinal tap done and that didn't show MS. Um, however, the spinal tap showed that they thought um, that could I could have a CF. CFS leak or CFF leak, uh, basically a leak in your spinal cord. Um, and they did MRI as a check. They're, they're sure they're like, I'm, they might be the case. They thought my brain might be sagging a little bit in my skull. So they're like, let's guess, we think it might be this. Um, so let's do a blood patch to try to do that. Like a procedure. They did that blood patch once didn't work. They did it again. Didn't work. Um, and then basically that doctor said, I don't know what's going on anymore. Um, so they kind of, they wouldn't treat me any longer at that point. So, so at, at any time during your journey, before you got your Lyme disease diagnosis, did anyone even mention Lyme to you as a possible, uh, diagnosis for the challenges that you were facing? No, the only time that, uh, we started going, and the reason why we started going down this route is. From the University of Oregon, uh, there was a neurologist there, uh, or he worked at OHSU, the hospital in Portland, but he um, worked with a lot of U of O athletes with concussions. So I knew him through that. And so I actually, we talked to him, I talked to him on the phone. I still remember I was in the hospital, hospitalized. It was like day four or five. They didn't know what was going on. Um, and he started asking questions about, have you, did you ever go? He's like, I know you, I know this isn't, 
many things like this isn't, he basically, some uh, doctors diagnosed me with a concussion and I was like, I'd never hit my head. I've played football. I know what it's like. Never once hit my head. Um, and so I was talking to him about that and he's like, I know you, this, that's not the right uh, diagnosis, but he's like, my, uh, my question is, have you, did you go on any trips recently? Did you get bit by any spider bites or weird bites lately? Um, and so then that's when my mind started going and thinking about that, tr- the, the missions trip we went on. And then my wife remembering that weird bite on my arm. And that's the only thing I really knew. And then from there, we basically pulled ourselves out of the hospital and went a different route to get this diagnosis. So did, did that doctor from your, uh, your, your past um, relationship with uh, Oregon mention Lyme disease to you? Or did he just say to you, look, you're not suffering from a concussion. You're, you're not suffering from MS. The symptoms don't add up. You should just look in some other direction. Yeah, never once once mentioned Lyme. All he mentioned was like bites, bug bites, spider bites, uh, and trips specifically. Did you go on any trips recently where you got bit by something? Um, those were his questions. He never once said Lyme disease, um, but that got our mind spinning, which then kind of took us into a direction where connection of a connection led us to look into a uh, line literate doctor. All right. So give us that. So, so what, how did, how did uh, this path that was lit up for you by your, by the doctor from the university of Oregon um, lead you to a place where you would look for a line literate doctor? What were the steps you took? Yeah. So, I mean, I was in the hospital hospitalized at that point. So then my wife basically said we're leaving and wheeled us out of the hospital because they weren't getting us anywhere and they wouldn't treat, they wouldn't test or, do anything different. They won't even let me see an infectious disease doctor there because they said it's in your brain. Um, and we're not going to basically, we're not going to spend our time with an infectious disease doctor with you. And so we, we, my wife wheeled me out, um, of the hospital. We drove to our hometown bend and that's where my wife basically started regrouping. And she did most of this. Um, she has a friend that has Lyme disease. Um, and so that's where she called her and then her friend came over right away and we met with her, talked with her and went to go to ride, got an appointment to see her doctor here locally. It's Lyme Litter doctor, um, in Bend. And I write the first thing I walk in and they do a quick little diagn like symptom check of everything in my, everything that has transpired over the past six months. And the doctor said, I, I know you have Lyme. I'm going to blood test you for it with hygienics but I even, I'm not even going to wait for the test to come back. I want to start treating you with antibiotics. Um, and so that's kind of what led us there is mostly my wife, one friend that got us to the right doctor. So how did your wife make the connection with the friend who had Lyme disease? Meaning what was causing her to think Lyme um, and even, you know, reach out to the friend who had Lyme disease? Yeah, I think for her, she, she, just the, like the missions trip, the bug bite, she was really close with this, um, this friend of hers in high school. So she knew her story and she was very sick with Lyme disease in high school. So she remember, remembered that. Um, and so when we got here, that's the first person that came to mind was, okay, if this doctor from OHSU, this neurologist is saying, look this route, then that's the only person we really knew who to call because infectious disease doctors wouldn't call, wouldn't take us in. Um, 
they wouldn't, they would not even see me as a patient. So we didn't know what to do besides maybe go to primary and the primary diagnosed me with, or with anxiety and gave me Lexapro and, and basically said, that's it. So we, we really didn't have many other options. And that one friend was the only thing that my wife could think of at the time. So Hayden, and I know, I know you probably credit the neurologist from, um, you know, from your university with saving your life because he sort of set you on the proper path. But it sounds to me like he knew you had Lyme disease, but didn't want to tell you that he believed you had Lyme disease. Do you believe that? I think he for sure, he had a, yes. I, I think there's a reason why he didn't say he had Lyme disease 100%. And I think in his mind, he was thinking that I had Lyme. Um, but he was careful with his terminology in terms of what he said at that time. Why do you think he was so careful with his terminology, especially with talking with an athlete that he had um, a personal relationship with? That's a million dollar question, in my opinion. Um, for whatever reason, and I, I know it's worldwide, nationwide, uh, but from our experience working with every type of doctor there is the past two years, um, you good luck letting getting a doctor to say Lyme disease. Um, that's not really a thing that people will even acknowledge in Oregon, um, let alone them be the first person to put it out there on the table, if that makes sense. You know, what, what's disconcerting about that to me is your family had to go several other steps before you could get to a doctor that could treat you, right? And, yeah. you know, and, and you were blessed with having a wife that was capable and healthy and interested and, and, and willing to take uh, the bull by the horns, you were too sick to do it yourself. So it's not like he, you know, you could have done it yourself and your family had to take another step and find someone who would, uh, who would share their experience with you to ultimately lead you to a diagnosis. Yes. Yep. That is correct. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we we've pointed out on a number of occasions on this podcast is Almost everyone we've talked to has been diagnosed by another person in the community. We call it either bro science or sister science, where you know somebody who is somebody who's on the journey is sharing their experiences publicly, which is why advocacy is so important. And sharing on places like this podcast, where you're being kind enough to share your story, is so important because doctors, even doctors who are friends of yours, like your friend, are not willing to help us to get to a diagnosis if they feel it's gonna put them in some professional jeopardy. And as a result of that, it really has to be a, a patient-centered connection that gets us to the place where, uh, where we need to be. And in your case, you were very lucky for it to be such a short journey. Yes, I mean, I, I honestly did not know if I'd still be here today. I can say that with 100% transparency if I didn't find a diagnosis very quickly. Um, yeah, there's many reasons for that, but I, yeah, I was, not in a good space physically. And then because of that mentally as well. So let's talk about what the experience was like when you now finally met somebody from a community that you didn't know what you were going to be a member of, but you, you know, you, you, you are now joining a tribe, not voluntarily, but you were joining the tribe. What was it like to meet the first person from the community and how did it make you feel when uh, you had this person showing the kindness that you were showing you? Yeah, I mean, it was for sure a breath of fresh air, um, at the same time, scary in terms of all that she, her story as well as what she's gone through. Um, I remember kind of walking away from the first conversation I had with her, like, 
oh my gosh, we found out we, what we think it is. And this sounds right for the first time because every other diagnosis or thought that a doctor had didn't sound right to me. It never, it never added up. So that was nice. However, at the same time, it was um, a little bit daunting to me to hear um, everything that she has gone through and had to go through to ultimately find healing. So it was, it was there, there was a pro and there was a con to it as well. Right. So Hayden, did she say to you, I know you have Lyme disease, Hayden, was she the first person that said, um, who was brave enough and sure enough based on her, um, her personal experience that you had Lyme disease? Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I've never thought of it, but yes, she, she was confident that I did. Um, the doctor, when I first went into, that's what I remember the most, um, was his confidence in me having Lyme. It wasn't even, a a question for him. It was basically, this is, this is it. And I'm going to start treating you for it, even though the lab results won't come back for three weeks. So Hayden, I want to, I have so many notes from your discussion with Rich that I want to just circle back with you on. And the first one is you mentioned that you didn't know, or you don't know if you'd still be here if you didn't have such a short diagnostic journey. So I want to explore that a little bit deeper because we just finished premiering today, the monster inside me movie that's going to be coming out in the near future. And one of the things they touch on in that movie is the impact of Lyme disease on your mental health and your physical health. So when you said that, are you referring to solely physically your body was declining and you think you would have, you would have, it would have killed you at that point because of a physical component or mental health wise, were there suicidal ideations as well? Yeah, good question. I, my answer to that would be both. I don't know which one would have killed me first, to be honest. Um, but one of them would have. Uh, if it wasn't, uh, I would have been shocked at the pace my body was going at if I didn't receive treatment. Within six to 12 months, I, I would have been uh, as close to death as I would ever imagine um, if I didn't receive treatment quickly. Um, and that's my opinion on it. But And then if that wasn't the case um, mentally, I there was for sure, I mean, laying in bed in the dark for six months straight without being able to comprehend things or think or speak or walk to the bathroom or shower, um, or listen to things or watch movies. Um, that, I mean, yes, I would be lying to you if I didn't say suicide didn't cross my mind many times. And Hayden, prior to getting sick, did you ever have any suicidal ideations, anxiety, any kind of psychological symptoms that you experienced prior to getting sick? No, none. Yeah. Because I think it's important to highlight that not only will you have depression and anxiety and suicidal ideations as a result of being so sick because you're so you're suffering so greatly, but also the bacteria and the infections cause those symptoms as well. And we don't talk about that enough, how it impacts our mental health. So thank you for being so open and vulnerable and sharing that with us, especially because, look, you you were a youth pastor. You have a very strong relationship with God, and yet you still had those thoughts. So talk to us about the conflict you experienced in your faith while going through this journey before getting your diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew all the right answers to suffering. Um, whenever people would ask, I, I knew from a, an apologetic side, um, how to rationally think through those questions. Uh, but to experience it yourself at that deep of a level, it, it's a different story um, for sure. So, I mean, I, I'd, I'd explain like my faith and God and, and this basically 
the season that I've been in as if my faith was a flame, it was very big to start. I had big, massive faith. Um, but, and as this suffering has happened and the illness has happened, the, the flame has gotten dampered a little bit and a little and smaller and smaller. And now there's, there's like a small flame. Um, and for me, I, that the one flame, the thing that I personally keep relying on, um, is the truth of the resurrection for me personally is, um, that there is hope beyond this life. And I know that to be a fact. And so me clinging, that's what got me through faith wise is just that one thing. It was only one thing that did. Um, I mean, there's many other theological things that you can talk about, but those all became kind of on the back burner for me. And that was the one thing that allowed my faith to, uh, to survive and for me to continue to fight for it. So in addition to being bed bad, I just want to get a symptom, an idea of your symptomology here. So you had chronic migraines, you were, you were bedbound. You couldn't remember your name. You couldn't walk to the bathroom because you were so dizzy. You had a shower once a week. You were being taken care of by your wife. So you were at a point where literally you could almost, you couldn't function any activity on your own. It sounds like, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't go, I couldn't go outside for a walk by myself. Um, I, I, yeah, I couldn't read. I, I, yeah, nothing I could do by myself at that point. Um, there was obviously a ton of other symptoms that, uh, being in the Lyme community, you know, there's symptoms that you just even forget about that you deal with all the time. And there's many of those, but those are the big things that stand out to me. So Hayden, we know community is important. And in my own journey, I wish I would have explored the community of fellow tick-borne illness patients sooner and also embraced people in my personal life sooner to let them in to share this journey with me and help me, right? So being being somebody of faith and having all, all these friends in the church and having pastor friends, Beyond your wife, were there, was there anybody else that you leaned on and relied on to help you get through this difficult time before your diagnosis? And before you answer that, I just I find an interesting connection here. You're from Bend, Oregon, and we interviewed Pastor Dan Price from Bend, Oregon as well. So I guess the first question is, do you know Pastor Dan? And if so, how, was he involved in your journey at all? I, I didn't know Dastor, Pastor Dan until um, this podcast. So I listened to it, and I'm like, no, Bend, Oregon. <laughs> so I reached out to him and we've connected multiple times uh, since. But no, I, I, I didn't know him uh, during it. Uh, he's at a different church, but uh, small world for sure. Um, in terms of the community that got me through it, to be honest, my wife, like you said, is the main one. Um, after that, it's kind of shocking, but uh, my Lyme literate doctor, uh, I see her as my she she's my doctor 100 percent um and was at that time but she, she she has something to her where there's also a counseling component to her without her even realizing it just who she has is as is as a person and so looking back on it i see her as kind of one of the main sources of just hope and and, and life uh for my wife and i as we were navigating it but yes it was very isolating um, it's an isolating illness in general, um, but it was even more isolating because we didn't know too many people in the community that had it. We're definitely going to get to Dr. Janelle Payne shortly in about your treatment and your diagnosis, but I have a few follow-up questions uh, from, from your discussion with Rich. So you mentioned that when you were in the hospital, the, the doctors basically told you, we're not going to let you see an infectious disease doctor because it's all in your head. Now, are they referring to meaning it's neurological, something like MS, or you mentioned a, a CSF leak, or are they saying it was psychological and more mental health related? What, what do they mean by that when they told you that in the hospital? 
at first it was the MS, the CSF leak, um, that route, because they saw me and saw that I probably was a normal functioning, healthy person before that. And they kind of, they, they believed my wife when she told them that. And then, and the, after days in the hospital, it leaned towards, they, they, they basically said, you need to go see a psychiatrist. Um, and then wrote, wrote me a referral for, to see a psychiatrist by the time we left. So it went from one thing being, Hey, we think this is it most likely MS first. It was a CSF league. Then it went to MS. And then from there it went uh, a psychiatrist. Um, we, we don't know what's going on. We think there's something mentally wrong with him at that point. And I think that your story is not uncommon. I mean, I had a very similar experience. I went to the, went into the hospital having a seizure. They ran every test that they could possibly think of. They told me they, they gave me the million dollar workup and I'm fine. It's, it's anxiety. And if I don't take a vacation and rest, I'm going to end up in the psych ward, right? I mean, that's very common when doctors exhaust all options. But what impact did that have on you, Hayden? Did you believe or have, have any sort of doubt that you were truly physical sick, physically sick at that point when these doctors started putting these little seeds of doubt into your mind? To be honest, no. And the only reason why is because I couldn't really comprehend what was all that was happening, to be honest. Um, I don't, uh, I wasn't the one leading the conversations with the doctors. I was all my wife. I wasn't the one that was able to really understand what they were saying. I just said, poke me, prod me, do a spinal tap. Let's do an MRI. Like I, I, I was just more so lame there. So it, I feel like my, my mindset was survival then. And so for whatever reason that didn't really phase me because I knew what was happening to my own body. And I knew to the extreme that it was happening, um, that something was wrong and death was getting closer and closer. Um, so I knew it wasn't mental for me, but the frustrating and the hard part was less of hearing that they think I have something wrong mentally and more so that they don't have another answer. Uh, that was the, the, the troubling part to the whole thing is that they had no idea. So, so on the topic of wastebasket diagnoses like anxiety and depression that aren't root cause diagnoses, the topic of a concussion kept coming up. It sounds like in your discussion with rich, but yet, you never hit your head and doctors kept telling you, you think you have a concussion. So where do you think that disconnect was? It's almost like they were breaking their neck to not think about tick-borne illness or infectious disease. They wouldn't even let you see an infectious disease doctor, but here they are saying you could have a concussion when you're telling them I never hit my head. I don't have a concussion. Yeah, honestly, I, I think it's from, and this is the downfall. Um, I think it's from college football. I think that when they heard my story that I played college football, that, that was a reason for just post-concussion syndrome, even though I never hit my head this time. And so to diagnose me with a concussion at that point, I didn't play. It was four or five years out of playing college football. I mean, I was well out of it. Um, but I think the college football thing is what led people to believe. And 99% of my symptoms were neurological. And so they, I think that's where they continue to go fall back on was, well, maybe he had a concussion that is never, hasn't been healed and he's having effects from that since playing football. That's my best guess at it. So, but as a follow-up to that though, I mean, another doctor, you, you mentioned the primary care physician said you have anxiety and threw Lexapro at you, right? So again, yeah. and I know it sounds like you were in that, that state of mind where it, you were having such a hard time processing things that you were just, I want to feel better. You weren't really being impacted by all these other 
non-root cause diagnoses. You just wanted the diagnosis to feel better. But in speaking to your wife and your family after this, looking back, did these things ever impact them, right? So your wife's there, she's your advocate. Now you're being told you're just anxious, take some Lexapro. You're being told you have a concussion. You're being told it's all in your head. You're being told, you know, did your wife ever think that maybe this is just you're having a mental breakdown? Did she ever have any doubts? Yeah, I mean, by the grace of God, no. Um, she, the only, I would say she's the only person in my life that didn't. Um, my parents struggled with it. They had a phase where they did struggle. They didn't understand, which I under, I totally get. And I, um, you know, I, I totally understand that. They just didn't get why I went from this state to this state. And all these doctors don't know what's going on. Um they couldn't understand or comprehend why that could be. And so they struggled with it for a, a couple months there and they didn't know what to do. And, but my wife was, <laughs> it's a gift from God for sure in terms of her mentality and her focus and her knowing me pre-sickness and during sickness, what the difference is. And it was really a flip of a switch um, that she, I don't know if it was God given or if it was just her knowing me that she wasn't going to stop until she got an answer. I can tell you, Hayden, I truly believe that that was God given. So that's, that's my opinion on that matter. But now you mentioned that you were prescribed Lexapro and possibly some other things. So did you ever take any of these medications for things like anxiety and depression before you got diagnosed? And if so, did they help you at all? Oh yeah. Yeah. I took every, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I don't even know how many medications I've taken, but yes, I took Lexapro I took, there was at one point they were giving me a shot once a week for migraines. Um, they were prescribing me very like migraine medications that would, uh, to the point where you take it and you basically just pass out for a good 12, 15 hours or so. Um, so those were the main two things they were prescribing me was anything with anxiety and anything with a headache. Um, none of it touched anything. So the headaches, uh, like I said, I've gotten my bell rung a couple of times playing football. Um, and this was very different. The difference in this headache was when I would get a concussion or got hit hard playing football, it felt like my, um, like a balloon, like my brain was, uh, full or swollen. Um, this is my Lyme symptom of headaches is a very, like, it's how I would explain it is like someone stabbing the back of my skull, my head with like a knife or a corkscrew or just basically digging in. Um, and that never went away besides after when I started antibiotics. Um, so all the heavy medications I took for pain and basically pain management for, uh, migraines, it, it didn't touch a thing. So one of the questions I would like to ask Caden before we get into the treatment for Lyme disease is, was there anything you did before getting a diagnosis to treat your symptoms, whether it be pharmaceutical or something simple at home, an at-home remedy that helped alleviate some of your symptoms prior to your diagnosis? Yeah, I've tr I tried many things. Nothing helped alleviate it. What I did try, we um, hyperbaric oxygen. I tried that. Um, I went into a doctor's office and did that 10 or 15 times and then decided, hey, we're, we're going to basically rent one for a month if this is the answer. So uh, we rented one. I had one house in my house and I did it twice a day, um, basically roll out of bed, gotten that that didn't do anything. Honestly, it made me even a little bit worse uh, at the time. Um, and then I tried um, acupuncture, like massage and things like that, that were trying to think outside the box that 
never touched it either at the time. So whose suggestion was it to try hyperbaric oxygen therapy and what were they trying to treat since they didn't know you had Lyme disease yet? Yeah, good question. It was uh, from the University of Oregon, uh, my knowledge of concussions. So anytime basically I got a concussion diagnosis, I, w- I would say, even though I deep down knew this wasn't the case, um, that I, I would still do what they recommended. So then I can prove to them that it wasn't it. So uh, it was that at that point, it was uh, more, I think it was a holistic doctor in Portland um, that actually was one person who diagnosed me with Lyme disease and then also said, hey, let's try hyperbaric or not Lyme disease. I'm sorry, diagnosed me with a concussion and said, let's try hyperbaric to treat it. And so that's where I, you know, got hyperbaric. So now I'd like to go back to Dr. Janelle Payne, who clearly is, is I think the, the angel in disguise here, right? Or the angel in general in your journey, because not only has she helped you get to where you are today, but she's also been therapeutic for you to help you. And from an emotional standpoint, you noted earlier, right? So you went to go see her. She clinically diagnosed you based on your symptoms, treated you before even getting the results. But when you got the Igenix blood work back, did you test anything besides Lyme disease? And if so, were there any co-infections involved? Yeah. So we did test, we did kind of the full workup of uh, Igenix and Mycoplasma, Borrelia, Babesia, um, and Bartonella were the four that I tested positive for, uh, through Igenix. So, so you had a cocktail I, of things going on in your body. Yeah, I had a lot. I did have a lot plus mold exposure. Yeah. So at this point, so she's a, she's a naturopathic doctor, right? Is she talking Correct. to you about things besides what we call the kill protocol, right? Is she talking to you about mold? Is she talking to you about detox? Is she talking to you about opening up drainage pathways, your, you know, liver, those types of things to help you help support you now that you know what's going on? No, this she, no, we were never talked about that um, until about, I would say six months into treating with antibiotics. And that's where I had a downfall. So once I started treating with antibiotics, they basically, I walked in, they said, Hey, we aren't hundred percent positive. You have Lyme, possibly many other things. We're in a blood test. You will get your blood test, ship it out today, but we're going to start you on antibiotics today. Like I want you to start now. Um, and so it was just doxycycline is what they started me on. The third day of taking doxycycline is when, um, I had, I don't even know what, how to explain it. It was basically a full, my bot, my entire body started convulsing. I lost feeling in my left side of my face, my left side of my arm and left side of my leg. Um, and I couldn't walk because my entire body was convulsing and shaking. Um, and so I was rushed to the ER. They thought I was having a stroke. They realized that it wasn't a stroke. They didn't know what it was. Um, and they just basically watched me as I convulsed for a couple hours in the ER room. Um, and then it stopped. And so then I got sent home and that's when, um, you know, the, my issues started happening and realizing what my Herx reactions were like from antibiotics. And so, uh, to answer your question, detoxing was not something that we knew about or that, um, our doctors talked to us about before starting antibiotics. So Hayden, I wonder, and I don't know if you got to this or not, but I'm just, if not, these could be things that you can look at that are possibly covered by insurance to see if, if they are impacting you at all, just have those data points. But because it sounds like you had such a severe Herxheimer reaction and you couldn't detox, you're killing the bacteria, Lyme and other things, which is broad spectrum antibiotic doxycycline. 
Now you're having all this massive die-off, but your body can't purge your die-off. So my brain immediately goes to, you're having an issue detoxing. So have you ever looked at the MTHFR mutation that we know there's a single and double and it's a very common mutation in, in today's world or, or the, the uh, mold gene because you were exposed to mold, there's that HLA-DR genetic deficiency as well. Again, which 25% of the population suffers from and it makes you more susceptible to having a reaction to mold when others around you do not. Have you ever looked at any of these genetic deficiencies that could be making your treatment response worse than a typical person? Yeah. Yes. And, but not to, I have both of those. Yes. But I, I did not, I have not looked into them until the past six months. So we now have a geneticist that's located in Pennsylvania that I work with. Um, he's a Lyme literate geneticist, highly recommend just his practice in general, which I can share with you later on. Um, as, and he's helped me out from a genetic standpoint and a detoxing standpoint, now but then no then we did not look into that we didn't know what it was or we just never heard of it um so it wasn't something that was talked about early on uh, when we started really treating with antibiotics all right so let's let's before okay we definitely want to explore that more in a little bit but you're three days in and you're, you're ending up in the hospital convulsing because you're treating too aggressively and i don't want to say just doxycycline but again in comparison to other people we've interviewed, people have done many, many antibiotics at once and had a better reaction. So now something's different with you, right? Is it, is it, you have other pathogens? Is it, again, your genetic deficiencies? When this happens, you report back to your naturopath, Dr. Payne, what is she, what is she saying to you and directing you to do at this point? Yeah. So we, I mean, we had a conversation right away with her the next day, obviously. Um, cause it was a very scary moment. It was, I would probably say it was the scariest moment of my life. Um, and so at that point, she's never, she's has never seen that type of reaction. Um, so basically was let's cut back on the antibiotics for a little bit and just cut down the dose a little bit and see what happens. Um, and that's where my story gets a little bit crazy, where basically from when we started treating in March of 2019 until August of end of August, 2019. So March to August, um, six, I was six out of the seven days a week. I was having those reactions, um, from antibiotics and it was, and it ranged anywhere from 30 minutes up to four hours where I would have full blown, uh, full body convulsions. I lose feeling in one side of my face, usually the left side. Um, my tongue would swell, I couldn't really communicate or speak. Um, I was basically very delusional. However, I was mentally aware. Like I remember everything and I re I'm, can hear my, if I'm communicating with my wife, I can hear her as she's talking to me. Um, I could stumble over words and things like that. But those reactions were happening at almost every night for, you know, five months there. Um, because, and the reason why everyone says, well, you're crazy for continuing, um, the fascinating part was when I was treating with antibiotics, that was the best I've ever felt. So antibiotics were working. I knew they were working. Um, I was 100% confident they were. So I basically would take antibiotics at night, have that reaction anywhere at night from about nine to sometimes 2 a.m., um, pass out, and then wake up, feel quite a bit better, like my life is starting to give it, be given back to me. And so I'd, take, I'd do it all over again. Um, just to feel good again. And so we were taking 
I want we I've taken high high doses of doxy, high doses of clothromycin, high doses of Bactrim, um, and we kind of rotated. I took two out of two out of those three at a time, kind of rotating um, those antibiotics in and out. So you started with just doxy and had that reaction, but then you introduced two antibiotics and you continued on because you were having success despite these extreme die-off reactions. Correct. Yeah, we basically got to the point where. I went to the ER so many times and we realized that if we can manage it um, and what we, what we did to manage it was any antihistamines. Um, so I would load up on Benadryl when they started Claritin, uh, like Zyrtex, um, and then Ativan as well. Um, those things would basically be a cocktail for me to, it wouldn't get rid of it, but it would calm my nervous system down enough. Um, so we basically decided to manage it and take our risk with it. Um, the reason why we stopped in August is because at one, August 27th, 2019, I, I remembered, um, it, it got the most out of hand it has ever gotten. And I didn't think I was going to make it through. I was, I ended up being rushed to the hospital to the ER. I was hospitalized for it. Um, that moment and my doctor actually showed up to the er that's how amazing she is and um, she showed up to make sure she could help and and at least see it too um and that's when we pulled the plug on uh heavy antibiotic treatment for me so this is probably a hard question but looking back obviously you had some gains in killing off a wide variety of pathogens but do you think that you were doing some counter damage as well because of your extreme die-off reactions? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I, for me, I, and I know everyone's different for me personally. I, I just remember how, how well I felt, um, while taking antibiotics. Um, and I could forget about the scary parts, uh, because I got my life back for a glimpse. Um, so for me, I would do it over again. Uh, to be honest, I, I would take antibiotics again, even if I knew this reaction was going to come. Um, because that that's antibiotics. It, it got me from bedridden, non-functioning at all, um, to upright, uh, working in some capacity. Um, but all we were dealing with at the time were, I mean, the, those reactions that would happen in the evening after taking antibiotics. So I, I would do it again with antibiotics. So I'm going to pressure a little bit harder here, Hayden, on this one, right? So you went from being bed bound. And then from March of 2019 to August of 2019, you started to get out of bed. You were able to work a little bit. But every night when you take your medication from 9 p.m. to possibly 2 a.m., you were pretty much paralyzed and, in, and suffering, right? So I guess the question I have is, and I'm not trying to be critical of anybody because obviously your Lyme doctor has been amazing and she's helped you. But, you know, we learn as we go on. And, I, and I've experienced this too. With, with, I have an amazing doctor, but I learn as I go. And there's things I wish I did differently looking back that I share with people to help them not make those same mistakes or maybe make better decisions based on my experience to help them not have to suffer as much as I did. Are there specific tools that you think you could have used or implemented then to help with the die-off reaction better than just doing things like over-the-counter, you know, allergy medication like Allegra and Claritin? Yeah, 100%. It was detox. I mean, that's that's the main issue that we never addressed early on. And now we're playing more catch up on um, in the past year. 
to try to get my detox pathways opened up to then be able to, um, you know, handle treatment. And so if I were to do it, yeah, if it's one of those, it's a catch 22 because I would much rather have done the detox first, which we should, I think we should have done first to make sure everything was good there. And then come on with personal opinion, then come on with antibiotics, um, to then make sure that would alleviate most likely completely all those reactions that happened. Um, I don't know if I would have done it if solely because, um, it depended on how long it would have taken to, for the detox to, uh, pathways to be opened up and for me to be able to be given antibiotics, because at the time I, I still remember how, how the, basically my eyes opened up to the world again, when I took and, and was starting to treat with, uh, antimicrobials. So, um, hundred percent wish I would have done the detox first, but it would have been difficult for that time period to wait, um, in order to treat with antibiotics or some sort of, uh, herbal to kill off the infection. If that makes it, sense. It's really catch 22 because you're right. You were that sick way. You were, you were worried if you waited a few more months, you would have passed. Right. So here you yeah. are, you know, you're opening up drainage pathways, but you're wasting precious time, but you were having these debilitating suffering moments every night. So I, I'm with you and I, and who knows yeah. what the right situation is right now. I guess what I'm thinking though, is from a, from a detox standpoint, you know, have you tried anything to help, help like with inflammation, right? Cause I think inflammation is the key there. So now moving forward, have you ever explored anything like CBD oil or using any kind of herbal supplements or glutathione or any kind of maybe uh, supplements that you can use to help now in the current time to help you when you have these IOF reactions with treatment that you've been doing more, more recently? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So herbal protocols we have been doing there. Um, quercetin is one that I found to work quite well for me as well. Um, in terms of that, I mean, and detoxing, we've done like we've infrared saunas that we, we have purchased the dry brushing Epsom salt baths, um, kind of, you name it, the, the classic ones is what we've tried. Um, with my case, we have had to, we have had even issues where I detox too fast. Um, so I'm like, for example, if someone's starting in a sauna for, they start out for 20 minutes, I usually start, I would start for three minutes and then I'd get out of the sauna and then do it three days later for five minutes and then have to. So then that we basically realized that my body was so sensitive to anything. The biggest thing being antimicrobials, but I was also so sensitive to detox. My, my system was just so messed up that I I've had to really go super slow with so many things in order to see results. Um, so that's what we have been doing. And that's, that's our kind of in the phase we're at right now as well. It's our focus is making sure our detox pathway, my detox pathways are opened up. So Hayden, I think, what you just said, you really explained it very well. And this is something that I think people sometimes don't truly understand. And they maybe make comments that aren't truly accurate. But I think you understand this better than most. You're going to, you have a die-off reaction, which is your classic Herxheimer reaction, which means when you're killing the microbes, they're dying off and creating toxins. And those toxins are not getting removed from your body. And therefore you're, you're becoming toxic and you're, you become symptomatic and your immune system is responding. But then you also have a when you detox, you can get sick or worse as well, which is kind of a weird concept because detoxing is I'm taking toxins out of my body, but you can have what we call a flare or right. You can have an activation of symptoms because you're mobilizing so many toxins that are possibly in your heart, in your brain, in your tissues 
you're mobilizing them into the bloodstream where your immune system is going to see them. Your immune system reacts to those toxins. And now what's happening? You're getting more inflammation, just like with, with the Herx reaction. And the bottom line is inflammation creates symptoms, right? So I think that that's something important to consider. If you're uber sensitive, you can't just go the hard detox regimen because you probably will feel a little bit worse, right? I mean, that's, I think, something you experience. And I think that something that many people make a mistake of at first as well, just going hardcore with the detox protocol. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I had, I've never had a reaction like, uh, like the convulsions from detoxing. However, I had had like had inflammation issues, for example, like at one point I was detoxing too much and trying too many different things that I started having like basically heart attack symptoms where I had a ton of pressure over the left side of my chest and my shooting pains down the left side of my arm, I stand up, I feel like I was going to pass out. And this was going on for weeks and weeks. And I had a full workup on my heart to make sure everything was okay. ER visits, stuff like that. Um, I stopped basically to see what it was. I stopped those detox uh, protocols that I was doing at the time. And the heart, the symptoms completely went away. Um, so it, it's nothing to take lightly detoxing. It's real. Um, but you do need to make sure you're doing it, you know, in a safe way as well as just like killing the infection. And obviously you had a lot of success with these antibiotics. And it was three again. So can you just recap them? I think you said it was doxycycline, Bactrim, and what was the third one? Clorithromycin. Okay. Thank you. So you got diagnosed. So just for time perspective here, you got diagnosed about three years ago and or about two and a half years ago, I think, right? Yes. Yep. October of 2018. So, or, yeah. And you were treating with antibiotics. Are, I guess for perspective, are you still treating with antibiotics today or you have you trained, pivoted over to something else? Yeah. Good question. So I basically, we, we decided, uh, my wife and I decided that we are going to go to, uh, Santa uh, in Mexico to do hyperthermia treatment. We were planning on doing that, um, in this last, last summer. And so we prepared for that, um, to do it and basically got the whole go, go ahead to do it from the doctors down there and my doctors here, uh, even though we knew it was going to be a risk. And so when we got down there, um, at Santa V, we, we love the, the care there and we don't really say anything negative about the treatment there. Um, there's the first hospital I've ever been in where, um, they see head to toe and look at everything and how it's related. Um, but that being said, on day three, the doctors said that my case was um, is a little bit too high risk for them and that they wanted to run some other testing and an MRI scan uh, on my brain again um, to make sure that they, they believe I would be okay to do the hyperthermia. So I was sent home to the States. Long story short, um, Sanaviv told me that um, I would be one of their highest risk patients that they've ever accepted. Um, that being said, they would accept me to, to do it as, as long as I sign off on um, some waivers to make sure that if anything happened, I was they were not liable and it was on me. So at that point, my wife and I got, it, it was a little bit too scary. So we stopped and that was like three or four months ago when we decided not to go back. Um, and so since then, we have switched our protocol from antibiotics to herbal. So we basically slowly went down on antibiotics, slowly went up on herbals. And now we're to the point I've been off antibiotics now for about two and a half months completely. And that's the um, first time and longest time I've ever been on antibiotics since starting to be treated. Um, 
and the herbals at this point for me and from what I see, um, they're working, they're sustaining me. Um, and we're slowly increasing those to be able to be at a, a dose that hopefully will heal me as well um, or get me on the right path to that. So that's where we're at with antibiotics and everything. So Hayden, three to four months ago, you were at Sanaviv in, in Mexico and you were there for hypothermia, but you left after a couple of days because the risk was too high and you were one of their most high risk patients. Did you do anything while you were there? Because generally at Sanaviv, I believe they do a pretty heavy detox regimen. They get your body prepped and then they go into hypothermia. So did you do any of the beginning phases or is it primarily just a overview of your health? And then you decided to not follow through with any kind of treatment there. Yeah. Unfortunately, they, they basically did a 48 hour overall testing for everything you can name, which I loved. And they, and it was great because they look at everything. Um, and so they're, they're testing everything possible to make sure that they're not missing anything. Um, so they did that for about 48 hours. And then the third day is when, when I would have started th something, um, with the detox protocol in order to really prepare yourself, um, and get a port put in and stuff like that would happen that day. Um, but that's the day when they said, we're not, we're not going to basically touch your case at this point. Um, and they, they, they sent us home the next day. You mentioned the pretty comprehensive testing, probably more than anybody's ever done. Did you, did you learn anything about yourself or anything that you, that you didn't know you had during that period that's now been helpful for you for the past four months since leaving San Aviv? Uh, nothing that I didn't know I already had. Um, so nothing new came out of it, but it was reassuring as just a uh, person who's been sick for a long time for a couple of years now, um, it was reassuring that we're not missing anything else. Um, so in, in, in kind of the Western medicine uh, and we're in the States here, you kind of have a neurologist, you have, you know, all these different types of doctors, your primary care um, and like your dentist even, and all these different things that you kind of have to manage at Santa Viv, it's all managed together in, in, in one. And so it was nice for, us not to have to go to all these different appointments that would probably take years to do. And we did it in two days there. Uh, ultimately for me, nothing new came out of it besides what the infections that I already knew I had, um, and that we're not really missing anything else, uh, at this point. Um, but it was, I would say reassuring and nice to have, um, all those tests done because it, it, it would take a long time to do that in the States. So Hayden, I mean, I think, I think in general, Santa Viva is a good clinic. And I think, you know, in your case, you were pretty high risk and you made a decision and I would probably would have made the same to, to not follow through because of, of your, your high risk status. But so four months ago, you, you weaned off, you, you started to come off the antibiotics. So that was about two years of oral antibiotics you were on at that point when you decided to come off them. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. We, we basically from, I mean, like I said, August, 2019. So the March, 2019, to August, 2019 was when we were treating with heavy, heavy antibiotics, like high doses. Once we hit that one time where I was hospitalized for it and I didn't, it was the worst reaction I've ever had. We dropped down to basically hundred milligrams of doxycycline from September of 2019 up until two and three, two and a half, three months ago. Yeah, I was just only taking hundred milligrams doxy. That's all that my doctors would recommend. Um, it basically for me was, um, 
they thought was kind of keeping me afloat for the most part. It wasn't doing anything to really treat or get you better. It was allowing me to function basically um, and without taking the risk of uh, what they didn't know what could happen from a reaction. So in that, in that period, that year or two where I was just on the hundred milligrams of doxy, I saw other doctors um, in San Francisco and in Portland um, where we try to started looking at things as well from a different perspective, from a mold perspective um, and trying to treat through different ways. All right. So for about a year and a half, you were on a mate, what I'll call a maintenance dose of doxycycline to keep you where you were. So you wouldn't get worse, but you weren't really making any progress. It sounds like, right? That, yeah, correct. Yep. So right. before we go into those other doctors, you were, we understand where you were. I mean, completely bedbound and, and near death. And now here you are functioning and you're just maintaining it with, with long-term antibiotics at a maintenance level. What were you able to do then four months ago that you couldn't do when you were bedbound? Just give us a general idea of, of how you were feeling, what your health was like and some of the progress you made. Yeah, I was, I would say in that maintenance, I was kind of like at 40% of health for the most part. I, um, if even, I guess, but I was able to, uh, work remotely, um, and do and, and hold the job, which obviously I was not able to do before. I, I mean, I was, I was able to function in terms of, a like reading, um, watching movies and things like that. And being able to go out on a walk with my wife, um, once every other day. Um, and you know, every once in a while, maybe get together with friends for like, maybe once a month, basically. Um, and so that was kind of my cup that we basically maintained for that time period where we, we didn't feel completely isolated. I definitely wasn't bed bound. I was up, I was working from home remotely, um, and being able to manage that. Um, but we just weren't living a, a normal 27 year old lifestyle. So now when you made the decision to start to use more herbal therapy, was that still under the care of Dr. Payne? And if so, what herbs are you using now to replace the antibiotics? Yeah. So I went from, so when I went from Dr. Payne and I kind of always consider her to be my, what I call my primary, like she's my touch point for everything. She knows my case the best. I highly recommend it if someone has like a, someone like a Dr. Payne in their life that, um, she knows what she can treat. Um, and if something gets too much for her, who to go to or who to resource out and bring in um, to help with the situation. So she's kind of been my main touch point. I've seen Dr. Raj Patel uh, in San Francisco. Um, and his uh, also he has an ND under him as well that I treated with. And so I treated with them for about a year and then they, they can no longer treat with patients in Oregon, um, for whatever regulations that are going on. Um, and then I also treated with Dr. Brooke Bodine, who is in Eugene, Oregon, um, the Portland, Oregon area basically as well. And so to answer your question with herbals, um, that's kind of my team of doctors that I have working with me, but in terms of herbals, uh, crypto plus is the name of the herbal that I have found great success with. I, I basically have, and I, me, I, I honestly didn't believe too, too highly of herbals, uh, mainly because I didn't try them. 
I just didn't think they'd work, to be honest. Um, but so far from what I've seen, Crypto Plus has done symptom-wise and treatment-wise for me the exact same that doxycycline has done. So Crypto Plus, it, it treats, from what my doctors tell me, it treats a number of things, uh, Borrelia, uh, Bartonella, are two of the main things that it treats um, and also can touch some viruses as well. But it's kind of a maintenance thing that we've started with to really dive deeper into the, the herbals. And so that's our goal moving forward is to be able to sustain and slowly increase uh, somewhat by the guidance of Dr. Rawls as well, even though he's not taking patients. I've seen him on a consult basis um, in terms of trying to find complete healing from this. So Hayden, I think, I think, you know, it sounds like it's a research nutritional crypto plus is the yellow label. Is that what, is it, it's a tincture? Is that what Correct. you're taking? Yeah. Okay. Yep. As we're talking, I'm looking it up here and I think, you know, your, your, all of the current studies and Dr. Rolls always references the study out of Johns Hopkins that, you know, studied all these different herbs and which ones are the most effective against Lyme and co-infections. So obviously crypto plus is going to have cryptoleptis in it, which is a strong, strong broad spectrum antimicrobial that will hit Lyme, Babesia, Bartonella, all of the known, you know, the, the really most common co-infections. And then has other things like, like um, uh, black walnut and some, some uh, red root and things like that, that are very powerful. So are there any other tinctures or supplements you're on besides the Crypto Plus? At this point right now, no, I'm not. I've taken Cemento in the past. Um, crypto Plus is basically, like I said, in my case and with the doctors, the suggestions that they have, most people would just basically in the Lyme community, they kind of have to do many different things at once. Even Dr. Rawls said to me, he said, take these, take this lightly because knowing you, knowing your reaction, um, I don't mess around with this, like go very, very slowly. And so that's what we've been doing. And we're trying to get basically to a dose that is high enough um, to really treat as well with just crypto plus, and then we'll start adding in other things. But I have tried, I have done cemento previously, and that was um, when I was taking heavy antibiotics. Um, we were kind of hitting it with a bunch of other supplements and herbals at the time. But in the meantime, crypto plus is something that I found success in and, and is what I've been taking currently. And cemento, I think, is a nutrimetic supplement. And I think that's the, it's really cat's claw, I think, is the main ingredient. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And that was more of a supplement to the antibiotics to help from a, an herbal antimicrobial standpoint, right? Is that what you said when you were on the antibiotics? Yeah. Yep. So now you did mention you have a geneticist as well. So I guess before we go there, the Dr. Raj Patel and Dr. Brooke Eugene uh, out of San Francisco and Portland were... Are they just naturopathic doctors as well? Are they Lyme specialists? What's, what's their specialty? Lyme, 100% Lyme. They're naturopathic doctors. Uh, Raj Patel is an MD, though. He's, he's an MD, but he solely treats Lyme disease um, and does it from a naturopathic standpoint. Um, but and then, and then Brooke Bodine is a naturopath who treats solely Lyme disease. And it's with collaboration with those two doctors that you're now on crypto crypto plus. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So talk to us about the, about the geneticist, right? Because we talked about earlier that the MTHFR mutation, which we know is, is I think 40% of the population has a single mutation and 13% has a double mutation for that. And the HLA-DR mutation, which is again, 25% of the people ha in, in the world have that as well, which makes you more susceptible to mold illness, which again, you were exposed to. So 
what brought you to a geneticist and how, what did you learn from this geneticist? Yeah. So basically the, the geneticist was brought in from, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get his name here, but the geneticist was brought in from a Dr. Brooke Bodine who said, Hey, we need, we have a major like genetics issue. I think that is causing all the detox problems. Um, and so I need to, so basically it was her reeling in him, the geneticist out of Pennsylvania to really look into everything. Um, so he basically did a full genetic, uh, screening and makeup, um, of me, uh, through a test that he created. Um, and he, he does use like, even like something like initially to start, we used basically the, the raw data from 23 and me, um, to use that to then start the diagnosis while waiting for his results to come in as well. That kind of filled in a lot of the gaps. Um, but basically what it came to be is that, um, I have a, a major issue that we knew of, uh, with detoxing and there's genes that, that I have that have made anything with detoxing an issue. So he's put me on different supplements that I can write down and then get to you guys as well. Um, that have been kind of addressing the detox issue. Have I seen great success from it? I, I haven't, I don't know yet. Um, I say, I think we're too early to tell. Um, How long has it been Hayden? How long have you been on these supplements and treating with the geneticist? Yeah. So it was, it was about three months. So I really started and doing it for about three months. We took a gap because of Santa Viva. Now we're getting back into it now. So there, the Santa Viva gap, we kind of got rid of everything because that's what their suggestion was. And so that's where uh, kind of it, it becomes hairy there, but we started doing it for about three or four months. And now we're starting to ramp that back up again and focus solely on that as we do the herbals. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've heard about the 23andMe and doing those reports and then getting them to somebody who can interpret them and help you understand what your own personal body is lacking in to make informed decisions based on treatment. But it sounds like he has his own testing that he does for genetics that are above and beyond that of 23andMe. So do you, do you know his name offhand, Hayden? And if not, we could always yeah. put it in the show notes if you don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to find it. Yeah, Bob Miller is his name. I wanted to make sure it was right before I said it. <laughs> uh, Dr. Bob Miller is, um, and he is through uh, Tree of Life. And where is he located again? Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, ah, and he, I mean, he, um, he, he does I, very, very interesting. If you guys ever get a chance for sure, try to have a conversation with him. Um, but he has the, he's a geneticist, but through the lens of Lyme disease specifically. So that's, that's his main focus is treating Lyme patients through genetics. His belief and his belief system is that there's certain people with Lyme disease that have certain genetic mutations and issues that are the re are that, that basically have the, the chronic Lyme and have the major issues with Lyme disease rather than patients who don't have those issues that are able to usually come out of it easier. Um, and so his philosophy and belief is that if treating these genetic issues will then uh, allow people with the help of other therapies to come out of uh, this treatment quicker, basically. So, so Hayden, you're giving us a lot of firsts on this podcast. And again, thank you for our first Lyme litter geneticist that we can now recommend to people. And he's close to us here in PA. 
and treats Lyme as well. So I think that's a really powerful, a powerful uh, tip that you're giving us and our listeners as well, because you're right. Why do some people get Lyme and, and, and not be impacted and others are greatly impacted like you and I? And I think there are so many factors and many of them are genetic and many of them are lifestyle driven. But the more data we can have, the better we can approach our healing. And that's exactly what he's doing with you. And I think that's a really great approach you're, you're doing now with Dr. Miller out of PA. So is there anything else? So, I mean, I know it's been a, it's been a couple of year journey, right? We're talking, you were talking, you got diagnosed three years ago and you know, you're, you're, you've been taking it slow and steady and you've made some great progress. Any other doctors, any other treatments, anything else you're doing that you want to share with us that has been beneficial in your healing journey? I mean, I've, I mean, I've tried a lot of different things. One thing that I have found recently to be a somewhat of a success so far is um, acupuncture, believe it or not now. Um, so acupuncture has you and I, I, I would tread that lightly as any advice for anyone because you have to find the right acupuncturist for sure, because um, some will even make things worse for you. Um, if there's anything as a Lyme literate acupuncturist, I would try to find one, uh, or at least one that has treated Lyme disease before. Um, and I've found success in the areas of gaining more energy and having less brain fog. Um, so those are two major things that I found success with, with doing acupuncture. Um, you know, in terms of other things, I, I, for me personally, the biggest, I think in my situation is the things that are going to get me better is antimicrobials, uh, making sure my detox is pathways are open. So focusing on that and then, be, then being able to treat with antimicrobials, that's, what's going to get me to a hundred percent health. Um, and so we have the path to get there now. Um, but I know it's different for everyone too. finding the, finding what is going to work for you is the hardest thing, the most frustrating thing. And, uh, honestly, the most depleting thing in this Lyme journey, um, but you, as just if, as long as you keep fighting and keep knocking on doors and keep trying things, you'll find some things that really work and then find that path to healing. I think Hayden, it's a really good high level overview of a successful healing journey. You want to look at your unique body and make sure you're detoxing and allowing your body to be optimal to process everything that's going on and, and, and the die off and the toxins and also find a broad spectrum antimicrobial protocol, whether it's Western medicine or Eastern medicine. In your case, you did both antibiotics. Now you pivoted to herbs, but to make sure you hit everything because we know Babesia is a parasitic bloodborne infection. It's not something like, like a spirochete with Lyme and it requires a different type of, of pharmaceutical if you're going to go that route. So you have to really be mindful of what's going on in your own body and, and address that to heal. And I want to make a quick observation before I ask you my last question and Rich takes over is, Hayden, you told us that you couldn't even remember your name when you were bedbound. And here you are today. And I love this part of the podcast. Here you are today. You've been on with us now for several hours, including our pre our pre offline discussion. And you've given us so much information. I have pages of notes and you've given us so much first, you know, so much information we've never heard before in this podcast. So that in itself is such a powerful transformation that Rich and I and everybody listening are going to observe. So I hope you realize how far you've come and how far you're going to continue to go to get yourself even better and helping other people in the community. But my final question before Rich picks up is looking back at your journey as a whole and you know everything that you went through, if you ran into somebody at church, they came into you and said, hey, Hayden, I just, I've been sick for years. I just got a diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease. What is your advice? what would you give them as their first tip or piece of advice as a newly diagnosed chronic Lyme patient? 
Yeah, my I mean, my first thing I would tell them is um, go see a Lyme literate doctor right away. Um, that would be my first advice. And because I know how difficult that is, I would give the phone number of the person they should call. Um, so that's, that would be because I, I mean, I've had it before and in the past couple of years, I know people and people in my own life that have found ticks on them, um, in Oregon and they call me or I, they call my parents and then they tell me. And so, um, it's happened many times and my advice 100% is to call for me, the number I give you, please. Um, because that, and that will ultimately find, you know, make sure it doesn't get to this point for sure. Um, so if you don't know a Lyme litter doctor reach out to someone on social media or post about it or do something to make sure it gets out there. So you can at least be in the right hands. Um, I would not suggest going to a primary care. If you're in the state of Oregon, at least, uh, don't go to primary care. They don't care. Um, so <laughs> make sure to go, uh, to see a Lyme litter doctor. So Hayden, uh, um, I think it's very funny that the primary care physicians don't primarily care. And so that was a, a pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty interesting observation and a twist of uh, terms. So let's talk about your transformation, Hayden. Let's talk about how, um, you know, this journey has had uh, beautiful elements and that you've learned um, uh, more about you and your purpose um, through this journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said before, I, yeah, I, this, Lyme disease doesn't just take a toll physically, it takes a toll mentally, as well as spiritually. Um, so for me, I think, you know, purpose for me is um, one, helping people know that there's a hope beyond just what we see, the suffering we see, whether it's a, a global pandemic, um, or a pandemic of Lyme disease, um, you know, or whatever suffering it may be. Uh, this isn't it. You know, there's so much more to this world and there's so much more hope in Jesus than just this. And so for me personally, that's my hope. And that's where I've um, anchored myself in the midst of this. And what has really gotten me through um, is Jesus himself. Uh, and beyond that now to others, for me, purpose in helping people along this journey, uh, you know, helping with this, things like this, sharing my story, um, making sure that uh I do my part. The Lord has given me a story for a reason. So I do my part in sharing that in hopes that it will help other people um, is also, I feel purpose in that as well now since going through this. So talk to us about what baggage you were carrying around, what self-limiting beliefs you were carrying around, and how this journey has helped you to become a new person um, free of those self-limiting beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I, I care less about the small things now. Um, to be honest, I, I mean, to get up, to be able to go in the shower, uh, to be able to have the ability to work, um, to be, have the ability just to go on a walk, to sit outside in the sun, um, to breathe fresh air and get out of the house. Um, those things to go out to dinner, um, like those things for me are, are massive. And I, what I used to take for granted, um, I, I now take as major blessings in my life. Um, and so a massive perspective shift has happened. And so just because of that, uh, I think I live more lightly in this world. 
Uh, I am not like as heavy. I'm not as burdened by things because um, I, I see them as blessings now. So. So you're also living a more enjoyable life, right? Because you're enjoying an opportunity to be outside. You're enjoying the opportunity to have dinner, things that you took for granted. You took just about everything for granted. And now you have a richer life because you have so much that was a blessing that you didn't see as a blessing that you're now enjoying as a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing less things, uh, but I get more fulfillment and joy in those small things. Um, so even in the midst of where I'm at right now, where I'm not quite back to hundred percent where I want to be, um, um, you know, the, the small things are bringing me so much more joy than the big things would have previously, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I, I'm thankful for all that I've gone through and my wife, I say we, cause it's a we thing for us. So what we've gone through, um, because of that, it's, it's brought joy and very, very tiny, tiny things that it wouldn't have if we didn't go through it. So talk to us about your ministry. You were, you were a youth minister at the time that you had gotten sick. And now it seems to me that you have a much broader ministry than you had before, because you're now an advocate uh, in a community that you hadn't even been aware of. Uh, and you're now uh, even inviting folks to reach out to you and, 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 and uh, ask for uh, recommendations for doctors. So talk about how we, this ministry has expanded and how it's a very different ministry than you had before you had gotten sick. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I was solely ministering to high school students in Portland, Oregon before um, and bringing them hope um, and salvation. But the now it's just, uh, it's, it's much more broad, um, whether it's just small conversations with people um, to, you know, helping people in a practical standpoint with Lyme disease and their journey, um, from people that are reached that reach have reached out to me in that case, um, to, I think also the, what the Lord has done in my life is just how you live it. Um, not necessarily, you don't have to be in a vocational ministry to do ministry by any means. Um, it's just how you live your life, uh, and the, and the perspective that you have and the light that you bring no matter what you're going through, um, that's, that's ministry. And so, um, for me, that's where I've kind of found it is just in little things from, cause I, I mean, I interact with less than five people a day now where I was interacting with about 200 a day, uh, in my previous, my previous job as a youth pastor. Um, and so just those, those five people, um, I just take advantage of that and, and showering them with love and grace. And so that's where I found ministry and purpose for sure. And it's just much more broad. It's much more uh, all encompassing life perspective than just kind of a narrow focus on an age group of kids. So let's talk about our first ministry, which is our family and your marriage. Um, how has this caused you to appreciate your, your wife and your marriage and this first ministry in a way that you hadn't before? Yeah, I mean, it's it's for sure different for me because I don't know if I would have been alive if it wasn't for my wife um, in a practical standpoint. I mean, she was the main one who drove me um, to healing. It was her. Um, so 
because I mean, yeah, she from a, I owe her everything from that standpoint, but not only that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's my duty and my job to lay down my life for my wife. And so, um, that's where, yeah, we, we've become, uh, as tight knit as I think I I've ever known, um, because of what we've gone through. I mean, we're, she's 27, I'm 28 and we feel like we're going on 85, <laughs> uh, in terms of, uh, all that we've been through and just our perspective on life. Um, so because of that, I think we're going to find so much joy and happiness and fulfillment, no matter what comes our way in the next 40, 50 plus years. Um, because we've had the opportunity to build off of, um, a pretty tragic and horrific, uh, season to start off our marriage. So, um, I think that's going to be a blessing in disguise as we continue to move along. And yeah, that's our, our goal is just to be as tight knit as it gets to be a, to be a team, to be one. So now talk to us about um, the very last issue we always talk with folks about on our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And, uh, and I wasn't going to reveal to you who the person is, but you know, I'm going to now ask you about your wife and your first ministry. If God forbid she came walking into the room you're in right now after this podcast, and she had a tick biting her. What would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on a very tragic journey the way you had? Yeah, I would take it very, very seriously um, right away. Uh, it would be it would be a set like almost a sense of like as close to hey emergency room like that type would be our thinking process in it. Uh, we wouldn't take her to the emergency room by any means, uh, but we that would be our thought is that it's an emergency situation just to make sure it is uh, dealt with properly. And then we would uh, set an appointment for the next day to see our Lyme litter doctor here in town. Um, and most likely, depending on if we have the tick, ideally, we take the tick off her properly or if, and, and have it, that would be an ideal standpoint and then test the tick as well. Um, if we didn't have that, um, you know, I would leave it up to, we would most likely start some sort of antibiotic protocol, um, to be proactive. I, you know, I'll leave that up to the doctors to say, but, um, most likely we would do that. And so we, yeah, we, we have had that run it. Um, we have had uh, a tick on my wife uh, from our backyard. And so we, we've had that happen before already. So we're, we're well prepared for it, but that's what we do. We'd go see our Lyme litter doctor, most likely start antibiotics um, as soon as possible and treat it as quickly as possible. Pastor Hayden, we can't thank you enough for blessing us with your beautiful story and, and your family's beautiful story. And we know that the uh, folks who uh, follow this podcast are going to really be blessed by you and your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Hayden Crook. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Hayden, please visit him on Instagram at Hayden.Crook. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. 
And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, social media, or even our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.